Welcome to the Botstuber Austrian American Podcast, produced by the Botstuber Institute for Austrian American Studies. We feature interviews with experts examining the historic relationship between the United States and Austria. My name is Jonathan Singleton, and I'm your host for today. During the 17th and 18th centuries, nearly 100,000 German-speaking people, including Austrians, decided to uproot, emigrate, and find a new home in North America. Joining me today is Dr. William O'Reilly to talk about exactly how and why this migration occurred. Dr. O'Reilly is a senior lecturer in early modern history at the University of Cambridge and a permanent fellow at the Institute for Advanced Study at the Central European University. An award-winning historian and teacher, he specialises in the history of European migration, colonialism and imperialism. His research interests focus particularly on the Atlantic Road and the Habsburg Monarchy. In March 2018, he gave the keynote lecture at the Potsdamer Institute for Austrian American Studies annual conference. His talk was entitled "Hopeful Journeys: Perspectives on Central European and Transatlantic Migration, 1800 to 2000," and you can listen to this as well via the Potsdamer Foundation's website. Dr. O'Reilly's forthcoming book, Soul Sellers, deals with that steady flow of German-speaking migrants to North America. And is the topic of our podcast today. I started by asking Dr. O'Reilly what led him to write this book. What were the most surprising or interesting cases you found in this book? I'm still taken aback by the fact that a number of the people I'm interested in in the book, and they tend to be the recruiters, as I call them, the Verba, the Seelenverkäufer, soul sellers, as the title of the book describes them, which itself is a pun on words. This idea of selling a bond of labor. Of selling someone's soul, um, I'm still taken aback by the fact that many of these individuals crossed the Atlantic four, six, eight times in the 18th century. Voyages that from Rotterdam or from London to North America took anything between six weeks and, you know, in worst cases, months and months, and that they would commit to doing this year after year in some cases to bring migrants back because it was a, a form of income but also was a form of social capital they built a reputation as being people who were important as information brokers so that struck me as being really unusual on the other side many of the migrants going into southeastern europe going through vienna in some cases from the german lands uh, the fact that they walked all of these distances And then the fact that when they got there, some of them walked back because they didn't like it very much. So, the the distance, the commitment to actually going that journey, and then sometimes going back, and also the fact that um, you know they they were able to return. I, I think it's fair to say at the beginning of this project, I didn't understand how significant return migrants were, both for encouraging others. And for dissuading others from going, and th- that notion of return migration is a very important part of the story too. What was the most enjoyable aspect of this research for you? Well, that's a very good question.、Uh, in terms of the enjoyment, I think it's undoubtedly trying to reconstitute biographies of individuals in the long 18th century, trying to piece together, pretty much on the basis. Of archival resources along the very trips they made themselves, sometimes beginning in、um, the Rhineland, sometimes beginning、uh, in the Austrian lands, and then following them along various, typically riverways, finding archives along the way to see if they left any trace behind, and then 
looking for the, as it were, the outcome of their travels either in North America or in Hungary or elsewhere. That was certainly the most interesting. How were the notions or images transmitted to migrants in places like Central Europe? At the beginning of our period, uh, what uh, attracts people and the images that attract people to America are written texts about the idea of America, typically in ballad form. So I've come across a number of ballads, itself very rare, because of course uh, oral promotion, the spoken word, is rarely then recorded. And so I was very fortunate to come across uh, a ballad transcribed by somebody who was complaining about the fact that the ballad sold him about America was not true. So he reprinted it in a broadsheet in Philadelphia after arriving there in order to show other people that in fact these are lies. And those ballads included things like bison, a word that's used often in, in German language literature about America, big beef animals if you think of it, that are purportedly roam free and anyone can shoot and kill and eat. Uh, a bewildering idea, an amazing idea for people in Europe in the early 18th century that bison are so tame they put their heads in the windows of your home and you can simply kill them that way, or that roasted pigeons are available everywhere, or that rivers are made of, of, of honey and, and alcohol. Now, of course people are not naive and believe this, but they do take these tropes again as representative of the availability of land, of food, of whatever it is that is limited in supply in Europe. They are disseminated in limited forms in print in the first half of the 18th century, much more popular in the second half. That print itself is subject to censorship and certainly one of the reasons why we have such good supplies of the literature used for promotion is that it was confiscated and therefore kept in archives so we get to see it. And of course the other form, two other forms of uh, image circulation about America, the first is uh, private correspondence and again, we have a lot of that because it was confiscated. And the third, perhaps most important area, is oral culture. So individuals coming back, and we know of them because they were frequently arrested for breaking the law by promoting people to emigrate without permission. Um, so we have limits on people's rights of movement. Individuals turn up in villages, small villages, tell us about America, and we want to go. So that, that's how images of America were in circulation. How did America compete with Central Europe and other places for migrants during the 17th and 18th centuries? So again, I think it's fair to say that if I can talk in, in general terms, most people, uh, when presented with the thesis of the book, that some people went east, some people went west, some people went to America, some went to Hungary. And I say this to people and they go, well, why would anyone have gone to Hungary? Surely everyone wanted to go to America? And the answer is no, actually. Um, the majority of people wanted to go somewhere that was better. That's true then as now. And that betterness was, in of course, entirely subjective. It depended on what you believed somewhere to be, and you believed that place to be the place described because you believed the people telling you about it. You trusted the information given you, you trusted the advice given you about moving somewhere. And this comes down to a battle of marketing in some places. That may seem anachronistic, but of course at the beginning of the period I describe, uh, we're looking at individuals who had limited access to printed material, 
and some of them, of course, were even illiterate, so had no access to printed material at all. They trusted the human voice. They trusted people who may have known. And again, it comes back to the agency of the individuals promoting different places. And what we see is that America develops a reputation, the, the top topos of America, the idea of America develops a reputation, and that that very idea itself is mappable onto different places. So that America is America, but America is also Hungary, America is also Russia, America is also the Sierra Morena between Spain and Portugal. America is lots of places because it is a topos. And until, I would argue, really the second half of the 18th century, for the majority of people, America is interchangeable with Carolina, Pennsylvanian, with the idea of the craze of going to someplace better, the rabies Carolina, as it's known, the madness of difference. And that difference works to enable people to go to lots of different places. By the mid-18th century, it's no longer possible to do that because the number of people crossing the Atlantic means that people have distinguished and determined there is a difference between East and West, and they know it as such. In broadest terms, therefore, your first question, what is it that attracts people to America? What attracts them is what attracts them to other places. The opportunity of free land, the opportunity of freedom itself, the opportunity of freedom from military conscription or military service, the opportunity to have confessional freedom, the opportunity for economic advantage, and a story across time, the opportunity to give your children and those who come after you a better life than the one you had. Where do the Habsburgs fit into this story? So the Habsburg part of this story is important in both direct and indirect ways. Directly, because of course Habsburg Europe, whether as part of the empire or as part of the Habsburg lands, the inherited lands themselves in Central Europe, were the most important sites for the recruitment of migrants. Now we could have a broader discussion about whether these are migrants or colonists, and that depends on our perspectives, of course, on whether these are colonial ventures or not. But let me begin by saying that, of course, German-speaking migrants are the largest migratory group from Europe operating outside of a direct colonial system. Let me explain what I mean by that. British and Irish migrants are going almost exclusively to British uh, imperial sites around the world or colonial sites. They're going to the British colonies. French migrants leave France and go to parts of the French imperial world overseas. German-speaking migrants don't have overseas colonies per se. And so they become a form of recruitable labor for other imperial systems. We find places like Lac d'Almagne, German Lake in Louisiana, settled by the French state with German colonists. We find German colonists on the borders of Spain and Portugal. We find them in South America. We find them in the Portuguese Empire. So the fact that these migrants are coming from parts of Habsburg-ruled Europe is first and foremost directly important. It's also important because these um, uh, migrants coming from what is known outside of Habsburg Europe as being a place uh, of defense, protecting Christianity from Ottoman Europe in particular, means that if we read German language or English language newsprint in North America in the 18th century, and I'm thinking here of the papers published by 
Benjamin Franklin or Christopher Sauer in Philadelphia, but in Boston and elsewhere too, we'll find so many references to the fact that people coming from German-speaking Europe are very good frontiersmen. And we'll find references to Maria Theresa as the defender of Christian Europe. Now, interesting that in Protestant literature, if you like, Protestant journalism, you find laudatory articles about a Catholic empress. You find laudatory articles about the Grenzer, about the frontier soldiers defending Christian Europe. And the idea that we must support Habsburg Europe. Strong view during the War of Austrian Succession against Bavaria during that period of time, in the British colonies in particular. So what we have is this unusual development of an idea of Habsburg subjects as being very keen workers, very strong, very supportive of the environment in which they live, knowledgeable, developed in their understandings of agriculture, and ultimately very beneficial for the state. And I could give you many examples of how this comes through in literature in North America in the 18th century, um, but maybe two references. There's the infamous reference that we're all aware of, Benjamin Franklin talking about the benefits of having German men and women, women in particular, working on agricultural land in America, that they're strong and useful. But then I can think of a wonderful letter, the original of which we can find in the David Library of the American Revolution, which uh, details George Washington, long before he became involved in, in independence movements, writing to a correspondent in England asking that he organize for Washington what Washington describes as a parcel of Germans to send him over 500 German colonists for his new farmland on the Ohio River. And he wants Germans, not English, not Irish, not Welsh, not Scots, but he wants Germans because they're the best. And so the Habsburg monarchy is a fundamentally important part of the development of America in the 18th century and thereafter, one that um, many scholars have overlooked, and mercifully, you and others are recovering. What was it like to choose to emigrate to America from the Habsburg monarchy? I mean, how dangerous was this route? The recruitment of migrants for North America was more successful precisely because I believe, and I'll come back to that point about relative success, but it was more successful precisely because it was seen to be illegal, operating against the wishes of states and others, than was the official supported, entirely organized Viennese uh, administration of the transportation of migrants to southeastern Europe. Let me explain. What I mean by that is that it was largely not supported for migrants to go to North America in the 18th century because they were seen to be leaving the Reich, leaving the empire, going someplace that was no longer a benefit to the greater uh, idea of, of Germany in its broadest understanding. And yet many people risked life and limb and lost money in agreeing to travel with free market recruiters for North America rather than take an open invitation to go to some place which was in a different manner under Habsburg administration, the Kingdom of Hungary, where the Habsburgs were kings in their own right, um, precisely because it seemed to be too familiar. Now that might, it still strikes me as certainly very unusual, and yet I talk to scholars and friends working with and 
on the subject of migration today, and they'll tell you exactly the same thing, that there is a, an unusual correlation between migrants, some places called refugees today, risking um, uh, life again, frequently, unfortunately, to go with someone that seems to be offering a higher risk than to go with someone who's offering you a much safer, but perhaps relatively less attractive in your mind opportunity. It really struck me as unusual, and in, in one of those odd perversions that happen to us at times, the world in which I live caught up with the work in which I was doing. And so I was able to see in real terms today how people make what is not rational choice theory, um, but is rather about risk uh, uh, and why they do that. That struck me as really unusual. And that itself brought me into writing little pieces about decision making and how one can use perhaps game theory and prospect theory from economics in historical contexts to try and understand how people make the choices they do. Dr. O'Reilly, are there any final thoughts you'd like to leave us with today? Well, I'd just like to say that I think we need more people to work in this area. We need more people interested in the relationships between the Americas in general, North America in particular, and Central Europe, not just in the 19th and 20th century. Of course, that's hugely important, and we must encourage lots of people to take on all those great topics and areas of research that relate to the, the period of closest contact because of the exchange of peoples in the 19th and 20th century. But I think we need more people to look at the history of uh, the movement of women in particular between both places, the circulation of ideas, the migration of ideas in the 18th, 17th too, of course, century, if we go back to Cominius and others and the influence on early 17th century Massachusetts thought, the founding of Harvard College, right up to the present day. There's still lots for us to do. We need lots more people to do this work. And so let's encourage many, many others with interest to develop them and with the support of Botch Deeper and others to actually develop these research projects. We'll all benefit from that. Tell us about your article coming out in the Botch Deeper Foundation's Journal of Austrian-American Studies. It's fa uh, fabulous that the journal exists, not least because it seems entirely tailor-made for me. It's a journal that speaks to the idea of Central Europe and the Americas and the relationships between the two. And so in part, again, from my interest in ideas of frontiers, ideas of borderlands, ideas of people who move and uproot and settle, and how that might connect to North America and Southeastern Europe, Central Europe, I have uh, come to think a little in, in the last number of months about how the idea of the frontier informs uh, people's lives and reputations, sometimes over generations, and how it became a matter of great debate in the Austrian Empire, then the Austro-Hungarian Empire in the late 19th century, and in the United States at the same time. And so the article looks at a very famous essay by Frederick Jackson Turner, the idea of the end of the frontier. So an article written, a letter um, first, and then an article which he delivered as a lecture before the American Historical Association in Chicago in the late 19th century, in which this young, relatively young, precocious scholar argued that the frontier both defined and had now come to disappear in the United States as the United States character 
separated and became distinctive from its European ancestry. So that America was defined by frontier mentalities, but now had forged its own, um, its own way. And of course, there are many, many ways in which we can critique Frederick Jackson Turner and what he wrote and how loaded it is and how difficult it is in terms of its obfuscation about the importance of enslaved labor in the development of United States society or of the absolute absence of reference to indigenous Americans. But at precisely that time, the Austro-Hungarian Empire had dissolved the Militärgrenze, the military frontier, which also for so long had come to define the idea of Europe, the idea of Habsburg Europe at least. We are not them, we are separated from them. And so the article looks at the end of the frontier in the United States and the end of the frontier for the Austro-Hungarian Empire and reflects on some popular literature and popular uh, ideas about the end of those two frontiers, particularly in terms of a type of Orientalist discourse about difference and about them and us. Um, so it's, I, I would like to think it's more a discursive piece than the final answer to anything. Of course, it's not that at all. But it tries to reflect on maybe the benefits for all of us as 19th centuryists to look a little bit more at what this means for our understanding of Austria, of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and indeed of the relationship between that empire and the United States. A quick reminder to our listeners that you can find the details of Dr. O'Reilly's article via the journal's homepage on the Bob Steber Foundation's website. Dr. William O'Reilly, thank you very much. The Botsteber Austrian-American Podcast is produced by the Botsteber Institute for Austrian-American Studies, which seeks to promote an understanding of the historic relationship between the United States and Austria, including the Habsburg Empire. To learn more about our grants, publications, events, and other programming, visit botsteberbias.org or find us on Facebook, Twitter, or YouTube.